Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Julie Douglas. And we're coming off of Valentine's Day here, but uh, the the war is still sort of continuing. <laughs> um, we rolled through, what, five or six topics yeah. on Valentine's Day issues from the science of lingerie to... Uh, uh, to what happens in a passionate kiss. To the color pink. The color pink. And what it's hiding. Yeah. And it's hiding, hiding quite a bit as we explored. But today we're gonna, we're gonna really tackle, uh, the final piece of the puzzle and, and one of the, the big tropes about romantic love. Love at first sight. Yes. I saw him from across the room. He looked at me. I looked at him. Sparks flew. We married just 24 hours later. Is that your story? Is that no. How, okay. <laughs> but, you know, that's yeah. a big Hollywood trope. You know, like the you're in a bar, you're somewhere across the room, and, uh, you know, you lock eyes. Yeah, time stands still. Yes, yeah. yes, you're outside of time all of a sudden. Um, and that's not to say that love at first sight couldn't exist. I suppose there's a possibility, but... In some ways, today's episode is a bit of a Trojan horse. Like we're saying, hey, does love at first sight exist? But really what's inside that Trojan horse is this idea that when you do lock eyes, there's a kind of autobiography of things going on to that, leading up to that moment that are influencing the way that you're even locking eyes with that person and assessing them. And that there's probably a lot more going on than just this instant palpable chemistry. Indeed. Now, uh, I think it's probably a good good point in the podcast to just sort of establish our own takes on this going into it. Okay. Yeah, I definitely feel like my take changed a bit in exploring the information. Mm-hmm. But where where were you on the idea of love at first sight prior to this research? Well, I always feel like this is just a case of semantics, mm-hmm. like love, lust. Intrigue, interest, you know, these are all sort of things that come up when you're in a room and there are strangers and there's always an excitement when you do lock eyes with someone that you feel like you have a connection with. Mm -hmm. So for me, I've never thought of it as like this sort of, you know, you just got swept off your feet and you locked eyes thing. Okay. Yeah, I I feel like for my part, it's definitely a trope that I always kind of look down on a bit. And maybe even if I was feeling a bit hot on the topic, I would say, that the idea of love at first sight cheapens love mm-hmm. and, uh, and, and, and yeah, just kind of cheapens the, the real sustained love that one has that you build over time. You know, it's kind of like saying, Hey, it took me 10 years to paint. Look at this painting I did. And then someone said, Hey, yeah, I just learned to paint and I made a masterpiece. You know, like, no, you didn't make a masterpiece. <laughs> you know, like the, the thing that I've been building all this time, like this is surely more substantial to, than this, uh, you know, brief look at a bar. And yet, there there's some things to this. It is, yeah. You know? That's the thing about it. Like now, having looked at the research, which we're going to discuss in earnest here, uh, you know, I I have to give a little more credence to the idea, or at least the experience of love at first sight. I'm not saying, I, I'm, I'm at this point, I'm no longer going to say you were not feeling love at first sight. All right, you were feeling something, and if you want to classify it as love at first sight. Go ahead. It could have been, yes, yeah, something, and it bloomed into love. Right. Is that what I'm getting from you? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. All right. Well, uh, before we kind of go into the different aspects of this, I just wanted to roll out some statistics. There's a 2000 Gallup poll that found that while 75% of Americans believe that there is such a thing as the one true love, 
overall, only 52% of people think love could occur at first glance. And here's the, the interesting thing about this. Um, if you break this down by gender, 55% of men think that there's love at first sight compared to 49% of women. Huh. That's, that's, that's a, interesting. It's a slight uptick, yeah. but that's an uptick nonetheless. Yeah, I would say it, it, it seems significant. I mean, especially, you know, if you're standing outside of the figures, one might, one might be tempted to expect the female percentage to be higher. You know? Well, I think that would be the stereotype. That would right? be the, the like stereotype. L- yeah. Women just can't, you know, help love and love. Yeah. Right. But um, maybe it's a situation of the, the stereotype exists, and men are more likely to buy into the stereotype. And women, of course, know that having the brain of a woman know that it's not quite so cut and dry. I don't know. I just don't even know. Okay. Now, Ilea Malik Pines, a psychologist at Ben Gurion University in Israel, found in a survey that a small fraction, 11% of people in long-term relationships, said that they began their courtships with love at first sight. So... And that's, that is pretty small. And that's just that area. And, and particularly there's a sort of cultural lens too that we're looking at things, uh, when we talk about love at first sight. But still, there are some people who say that's, that's how my relationship began. And begun is key here because as we're going to discuss, a lot of this falls into the, into an exploration of the timeline of romantic attachment, the timeline of, say, any successful or doomed relationship, however you want to look at it, and how it transpires and then how we look back at it. Yeah, and timeline is important. I'm glad that you brought that up, too, because um, when we talk about love at first sight, again, it's a case of semantics, because if you look at someone's work like biological anthropologist Helen Fisher, she might say, okay, that could be love at first sight a couple seconds up to maybe three minutes, depending on what's going on in the brain mm-hmm. and how primed the brain is. And this, this is where we really need to turn to, you know, some good old MRIs and take a look into the brain to figure out what's going on. Indeed. So let's go back to that, uh, the sort of the bar trope, right? Like what's happening when person A and person B suddenly lock glances and there's that magical moment and the music starts up. Oonst, uh, oonst, oonst, oonst. Okay, it could be it could be some oonsty music. Yeah. But essentially what's happening is your 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 eyes are locking on but your brain is locking on to a target. It's like uh, it's like a scene in Top Gun, right? Where the you're, you're trying to lock the missiles before you fire the heat-seeking missile at the uh, the enemy MiG, right? Um, except uh, when our brains do this, we're sucking away from other faculties. We're mm-hmm. sucking away environmental stimuli, mm-hmm. uh, our processing of time. Uh, we're using some of the same parts of the brain that are also involved in time perception. So it begins to, it, it feels like time is standing still. It feels like everything else is sort of fading uh, into the periphery because it, it sort of is from a, from just a, a computational side of things. Yeah, especially if you consider what is going on with the chemistry in the brain. Because as, as I had mentioned before, you're in the room full of people who are strangers. There's already an element of intrigue. You lock those eyes and maybe when you do that, that triggers the release of dopamine in the brain's reward system, which in turn may motivate you to approach that person. Because if we've learned anything about dopamine Mm -hmm. in the reward system, we know that 
um, there's kind of breadcrumb trail being made here. And the more you can revisit it and get more dings of that dopamine, well, the happier your reward system is. So, hey, why not go and, and talk to that person and see if you can increase that dopamine in your brain? Yeah, all under the duress of elation, passion, and this and this cultural idea of romantic love, right? Yeah, and that's kind of what is setting the stage for your brain, for this idea of love. Because if you look at this meta-analysis study, it's called the Neuroimaging of Love, and it was conducted by Syracuse University's uh, professor, Stephanie Ortega, it found that when people are engaged in this this sense of love, um, that there are 12 areas of the brain that work together to release euphoria-inducing chemicals like dopamine, oxytocin, adrenaline, and vasopressin. And then that's what is culminating to express that feeling of love and According to this meta-analysis, this can happen as early as 0.2 seconds of visual contact. All right. So you're locking in on target. And you can, can even think of the, the dopamine kicking in, the, the various other hormones we're mentioning, as kind of the, uh, the ignition behind the heat-seeking missile. Like, go out there, go to the next stage, right? Yeah. Um, and it, uh, also interesting in this study, they pointed out that uh, – these uh, euphoria-inducing drugs that are suggesting love, um, it, it's akin to using cocaine. Yeah, and uh, that's what's interesting about this. There's uh, this idea that newly found love sparks in areas of the, of the brain uh, that are associated with euphoria-inducing drugs. So mm-hmm. that's that's that feeling of cocaine. And also, just as a side note, this is why when new love crashes, like, <laughs> you know, and, and yeah. burns... Um, and you are withdrawing from that person, withdrawing from them, you, you feel that sense like you're withdrawing from a drug. Yeah. Because yes, no longer is that source available to you. Yeah, you're coming off of your fix, and you're going to need another fix. Uh, it also draws back to um, our previous episode that we did, I believe, on the dark side of serotonin. Mm-hmm. Um, so any of these chemicals, you know, even though we talk about, like, the love hormone, the, the feel-good uh, neurotransmitter, etc., like, these are, the, the brain is a complex system. And various parts of the brain, various neurotransmitters are, are pulling at least double duty. And so, there, even though there's a, there is a, a, a positive spin on any of these interactions, there's also a potential negative one. Indeed. Um, now, again, you just have to kind of look at it as this, again, this idea of, you know, split second love or love at first sight is perhaps more like there's some chemistry going on in the brain that is setting the stage for love. And Helen Fisher, again, she is that biological anthropologist and her TED talk called The Brain in Love. She says there are now three academic articles in which they've looked at this attraction, which may only last for a second, but it's a definite attraction. And either this same brain region, this reward system or the chemicals of that reward system are involved. In fact, she says, I think animal attraction can be instant. You can see an elephant instantly go for another elephant, and I think that this is really the origin of what you and I call love at first sight. Yeah, we're talking about uh, animal favoritism here. Um, Mate choice, female choice, sexual choice. Instantly, what comes to my mind is just like two beetles dancing around each other uh, on a a tree limb. And ultimately, you can say that, that any human interaction with its levels of human complexity is essentially the same thing. It's that little dance to see if these two pieces are going to lock up. Yeah, in some ways it's kind of thin slicing, right? Assessing the situation. All right, we're going to take a quick break, and when we get back, we're going to talk about imprinting. But we're not going to talk about Twilight the movie and imprinting. 
We promise. All right, we're back. I know you just promised we weren't going to talk about Twilight, but of course you're referring to uh, the imp- the imprinting that occurs when a werewolf sees a half-vampire baby <laughs> right, and, and right. falls in love with it. Just, right. just to clarify for anyone out there who's like, I don't know what, know what they're talking about with Twilight, but that's, right. that's and, it. And the same thing happens in humans. Well, no, it's, it's a little bit more complicated. Um, imprinting refers to a really critical period of early time in an animal's life when it forms an attachment and develops a concept of its own identity. So... Birds and mammals are born with a pre-programmed drive to imprint on their mother. And this sort of imprinting provides animals with information about, hey, this is my mom or this person or thing or animal is really important to me. And later on, this can determine who they will find attractive when they reach adulthood or who they pair up with. And there are a couple of studies that actually support this in humans and in other animals. Yeah, I mean, we're ultimately talking about a predisposition to fixate on particular types of people. Uh, you know, and the exact parameters are obviously going to vary a lot. It might relate to race, like you say, hair color. Um, but ultimately, it's kind of providing a, a rough template of what you're supposed to look for. In a mate. Yeah, and just so you have an idea of how easy it is to imprint in the animal world, <laughs> um, I wanted to bring up the example of Austrian naturalist Conrad Lorenz, who became the first to sort of um, codify this, right, mm-hmm. and establish the science behind imprinting. And he found that when baby birds emerged from their eggs, they'd imprint on whatever animated thing was in front of them. And so he tested this out. He himself became the thing that they imprinted upon, and they they followed him around, and um, he became the object of their affection. And then he also would put in other mother substitutes, and he found that those birds would just as easily attach to inanimate objects and oddities, such as a pair of gumboots. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes, this is the guy you would you'd see the images of him tracking around in the boots. Yeah. Yes, uh, a white ball and even an electric train. And again, this is if it was presented at the right time when they were emerging and trying to figure out something to focus on and to, again, harness their energy into figuring out uh, what was important, who was important, and and who they were. Yeah, I mean, from a biological standpoint, like life is essentially a matter of scaling this mountain of survival. To fulfill your genetic mission, you have to reach the top of it. And imprinting is is sort of a a way of finding those first uh, hand and footholds as you make the ascent. Yeah. Now, in humans, it's uh, it's perhaps not as as clear cut, but there are a couple of studies. Uh, there's a 2003 study called "Sexual Imprinting and Human Mate Choice," and this uh, the the abstract actually says, "Quote: We report that homogamy in humans is attained partly by sexual imprinting on the opposite sex part." parent during childhood, we hypothesize that children fashion a mental model of their opposite sex parents phenotype that is used as a template for acquiring mates. Uh, phenotype meaning like the, the physical characteristics. Mm-hmm. And, it's a, and it goes on in this abstract to say, to disentangle the effects of phenotypic matching and sexual imprinting, adopted daughters and their rearing families were examined. Judges found significant resemblance on facial traits between daughters' husbands 
in their adopted fathers. Uh, furthermore, this effect may be modified by the quality of the father-daughter relationship during childhood. Daughters who received more emotional support from their adoptive father were more likely to choose mates similar to the father than those whose father provided a less positive emotional atmosphere. And this, to me, feels like one of those adoy moments, yeah. because you see this a lot. Oh, yeah, like, this is you know? the classic, uh, oh, I married my mother, I married my yes. father. And also just the, the, the myth of, uh, of, of Oedipus, marrying your mother, murdering your father. Yeah, it's it's kind of funny because, um, as we'll look at in the, the next section here on gene um, compatibility or genetic compatibility, it's a fine line here. You want someone who's similar enough mm-hmm. in the traits that you admire in a parent um, because, hey, your parent was attracted to that parent and had successful offspring. The same thing could happen for you, right? Mm-hmm. But you want enough genetic diversity to strengthen any offspring that you might have. Yes. And if I can just return to the Top Gun analogy, it's it's identifying the enemy plane. There's a certain type of plane you need to shoot down. Yeah. yeah. Poor Goose. I, I have theories about Goose. I, I really wanted to see a sequel to Top Gun where Goose lived and was reprogrammed by the Soviets oh, to battle Maverick. Now that, yeah. that would have been a movie that I really would have <laughs> wanted to have seen. Uh, oh, well, you never know. Maybe there'll be some sort of reboot. Maybe, maybe. Directed I, I by Robert how. Lamb. Yeah. All right. Uh, but there, in terms of genetic uh, compatibility, again, we can look at the animal world. There's a study from April 2009, the issue of the journal Genetic in which researchers from Cornell University found that female fruit flies are biologically primed to sense which males are more genetically compatible with them and to make more eggs after mating with good matches than they do with less compatible matches. And so these findings suggest that the females can somehow judge a potential mate uh, upon their first meeting and then biologically react to boost the chances of producing again successful Offspring. So, and we bring this up because we, we want to kind of say that whole love at first sight thing isn't just, okay, you locked eyes and, um, this person kind of has these traits that mm-hmm. you admire. There's other stuff going on too. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff going on underneath the surface. Um, and, and with the fruit fly, uh, situation, like a lot of that is also related to a- avoiding hooking up with a close relative. Uh, which obviously is, genetically speaking, right. not a wise move for uh, for any organism. Uh, but then the, the human uh, crossover for, for this is, uh, is is pretty spectacular. Now, with the fruit flies, I mean, it, a lot of this is as simple as programming to keep one fruit fly from mating with a close relative and... Uh, you know, and stirring up the genetic ramifications of that. Mm-hmm. But then, when we, when we look at how this uh, plays out in the human sphere, we see uh, we see a lot more complexity. Um, you know, depending how complex you want to uh, to to make uh, sniffing um, one another person sweat or uh, you know engaging in a makeout session with them. Yeah, again, that's just it's complex biochemistry, and the fruit flies are exhibiting this in humans. We have seen in studies exhibit this when they sniff the sweaty armpits of t-shirts worn by uh, the opposite sex. Again, this is like sort of uh, gender normed studies mm-hmm. that we're talking about here. But the idea is that women were more uh, more likely to select a mate with someone who had a far different genetic expression than their own. Because again, you need genetic diversity. That's going to uh, that's going to result in stronger offspring, and that again is part of the whole genetic mission of of any organism. Um, so so you, we begin to have this picture emerging of um, 
it's, it's like multiple scans are going on, mm-hmm. uh, you know, kind of robot-y, computer-y Star Trek scans, almost, if you want to use that analogy. And and then you almost have different departments that are reporting back uh, on how things are matching up. Like, all right, does she look like our mother? Yep, looks like our mother. All right, we're good to go on that. And then you have the other uh, the other department, and they're like, all right, well, we're, uh, we're, we're making some sense of the genetic compatibility here. Um, we're taking in the smells. Uh, we may have to, to take in uh, some of the saliva as well, and we're going to see what the <laughs> test results there are. Uh, right. So, so there, there, there are kind of these different. Uh, it's almost like trying to get legislation passed or something. Yeah, you're right. And it, if you think about it that way, that locking eyes across the room. All right, dopamine. All right, now go inch forward and yeah. meet the person to get more dopamine. Mm-hmm. Now further assess. And then yes, at the end of the night, there might be the swapping of the spit to further assess whether or not uh, you're compatible. And in our mind, it's all playing out like uh, like like a, like a French romance movie. But uh, but yeah, under the surface, it's it's a lot more complex weeding out going on. Yeah, and there's another element here that is uh, pushing the needle a bit when we talk about this love at first sight, and it's called a sort of mating. And we already know that people tend to gravitate toward each other based on their shared socioeconomic and education backgrounds, right? So have you ever heard the the um, phrase, uh, birds of a feather fly together? Yes. Yeah, it's sort of like this. Like you're seeking out someone who is like you. And we know that we're doing this even when we're not trying to go after some sort of relationship. We just tend to do that. You know, with each other when when we're connecting with one another. Yeah, I mean, people you can have conversations with about the things that matter to you. You end up uh, engaging with people that are kind of from the same background or have similar interests. Well, it turns out that there may even be a body fat component to a sort of mating. There's a 2007 study in which the researchers uh, who were based at Rowett Research Institute and the University of Aberdeen measured the body composition of 42 couples using a sophisticated technique called dual energy X-ray absorptiometry. And the results show that the amount of body fat in one person was proportionally very similar to that of their partners. And so there's this idea that not only do we try to find similarities in our, our you know, socioeconomic backgrounds and what our taste in music are, but maybe even the shapes of our bodies. Yeah, no, the, the study did point out that it's it's unclear, though, exactly how these associations come about. I mean, do the social activities of uh, of overweight and obese people just merely coincide? Do the you know the, the social activities of active runners do they just happen to coincide? You met this person while you were engaging in similar activities that have right. an impact on your physical fitness, or you know, or vice versa. So, are you just more likely to meet people that have a similar body index? Yeah, and I kind of feel like across the board, obviously, you don't see this. I mean, you mm-hmm. see plenty of examples of couples who don't match up in terms of yeah. body type or body fat. Yeah, I mean, uh, I think it was Paul Abdul that, that pointed out that opposites attract, right? That was the, the big track. Wow. Yes, it was Paula Abdul. But as we've discussed before, opposites, they do attract, but you, you still have to have enough there in common Right. In order to make that whole dynamic work. So again, it kind of comes back to this idea of multiple um, committees weighing in. And so one committee might say, "Ah, uh, they, they're a lot shorter than we are. I'm not sure this is going to match up." And they'll say, "Well, but look at the stats on the genetic compatibility. Look at the stats on 
whether she looks like our mother. All these things are looking good, so we're gonna we're gonna maybe pass on uh, worrying about height or body mass index in this case. Yeah, a lot of this dates back to um, a 1970 uh, study from social psychologist Zick Rubin, where he took college student couples, gave them each a, each of them a survey, asking questions about the relationship, and then put them in a room, measured their gaze, uh, and uh, and what he found was you, you saw stronger connections of love, or at least reported love on the mm-hmm. questionnaires, matching up with more prolonged eye contact. So the more, and, and again, this is another one of those that sounds pretty obvious and seems like an overstatement of the obvious when we, we spell it out like this, but the idea that if you're making more eye contact mm-hmm. between these couples, there's more love present. Yeah. It's a stronger connection. Now, I also wanted to mention that just the, the bear gaze when you're you're looking out across the room at someone, mm-hmm. um, if you're giving a really direct gaze um, and the person is perceiving that, Already, the fact that you're like you're trying to get that person's attention is going to ratchet up your attractiveness one notch. It's kind of like this mutual admiration society, right? So if you both are kind of like baseline attracted to each other and you notice that you're looking at each other, there's that, oh, you're looking at me? <laughs> ah, I must be attractive to you and so on and so forth. Now, this is, again, one of those annoying moments, but if you smile... Yes. <laughs> that's going to give even more, you know, confirmation that, yes, you should pursue this. If you do not smile, of course, this is going to tell the person that you're not interested unless you look away and don't smile. There's something to this. Like you hmm. maybe catch eyes and you look away and you're not smiling. You're being a little bit mysterious or aloof. Yeah, and this was uh, this was actually proven out in a 2006 study from the Institute of Neuroscience and Psychology at the University of Glasgow. In case anyone just really wanted some some hard science to back up, uh, back that up. You know, it also reminds me of a story uh, that a friend of mine told me, and that maybe some people can relate to. So, my wife, a couple of friends, they were traveling on a subway in New York, mm-hmm. and one of the friends in this group has this. Uh, when she feels nervous, she smiles. And is oh, no. and, and makes eye contact with people. <laughs> yeah. So they they were leaving like a restaurant or something, and like some guy was interested, and she wasn't interested, but she was kind of like nervous, so she made mm-hmm. eye contact and smiled, mm-hmm. and like the dude ended up following them on the train for like a long portion of their leg uh, back to where they were staying, to the point where they had to like stop him and say, "Look, you just need to go on because she's just this is just a nervous tick with her." Well, also, there is, um, I'm sure that Sminty, or Sminty, uh, stuff mom never told you, mm-hmm. has probably covered this before, too. There's a cultural expectation that women should smile back. Yeah, I was thinking about that. Because um, there's the whole, yeah, the word, one of the, one of the worst, well, uh, one of the many bad things you can say to a female is say, hey, honey, why don't you smile more, right? Mm-hmm. Gen- right. Generally yeah. coming from maybe like older gentlemen at a fruit stand or something, right? Yeah, you, or you get stuff like, you'd look a lot prettier if you were smiling, and then you just want to punch the person. Yeah, because it matching up with this date, it's kind of like they're saying, I would want to mate with you more if you would smile for me now. Yeah. Like, that's horrible. Right. Do my bidding right now. I don't know you, but right now I want you to smile. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, so that, again, is part of those those unconscious um communications that we're throwing at each other all the time. Now, Cheryl Murphy, writing for Scientific American, uh, looks at the gaze and the smiling in a little bit more depth, and she reports that in one study, Kellerman et al. took 72 unacquainted undergraduate students 
and they split them into male-female pairs and then studied the effects that two minutes of uninterrupted mutual eye contact had on their feelings toward one another. And in their study, they found that if the two strangers gazed into each other's eyes for those two minutes, they later reported that they had increased feelings of passionate love and affection towards the other person. And then another phase of the experiment had the pairs of students interact in other ways, like looking at the partner's hands or counting blinks of their partner. But it was mutual eye contact that best fanned the flames of attraction. I feel like we've discussed this in terms of uh, working and collaborating in our modern age mm-hmm. as well. Like just at, at, at a very basic level, and I think most people can relate to this, like having that eye contact with the people you work with or even, you know, family, etc. Like that makes all the difference in your in your ability to sort of rein in uh, uh, how you're supposed to be feeling about any given uh, situation. Well, it's very powerful. And I think uh, we talked about this before when we were talking about uh, performance artists and Maria Abramovich. Oh, yes. Maybe that's where, where this came up. Yeah. She she had um, the uh, performance at, I think it was at MoMA in New York. I think so. The Artist is Present. The Artist is Present. There's a great documentary on it. And people would just sit across from her, I think, for about eight minutes, uninterrupted, just gazing at each other. And... People were going bananas over this. They were crying. I mean, they were. It was almost like they were having these mystical or even uh, ecstatic uh, experiences just by being looked at by someone. Indeed, because you you wonder, like, you know, I mean, if you just self evaluate, like, how much time in our day goes by without any significant eye contact going on? Mm-hmm. And this is kind of an artificial environment to, for us to be discussing this because we have to make a lot of eye contact. During the uh, the recording of the podcast, and yet we look away. I mean, like we you do. and I don't like full on like stare no, at each other no. the entire time because that would just be so weird if I was doing that. Like you know, that would be very intense. I feel like there's a timer in my head, so it's like I make eye contact yeah. with with anybody, not just you. Um, well, basically anybody except like you know my wife or my child, um, or maybe a cat. I don't know. Uh, there's like a timer going off. It's like all right, that's enough eye contact. You have to look away because if you don't. Too much sustained eye contact is maybe sending too much of a crazy vibe or something. I actually have an egg timer eye contact <laughs> that I okay. set. Yeah. Well, that's a good. That's a good method. I need a. I need a more solid method than yeah. just sort of trying to figure out how much time has passed in my head. You can borrow mine. Okay. Um, all right. We're going to take a quick break. When we get back, we're going to talk about the gaze a bit more and the difference between the love and lust gaze. Continuing to explore the question, does love at first sight exist? Or more to the point, what is the thing that exists that we tend to classify as love at first sight? Uh, Yeah, and Helen Fisher gives, I think, an interesting um, answer to why this might exist in the first place. And, of course, she's coming at it from an evolutionary angle. And uh, she's co-author of the study Reward, Motivation, and Emotion Systems Associated with Early Stage Intense Romantic Love. And she, again, looks at these, uh, this sort of constellation of neural systems involved with the feeling of love. And her idea is that we're marshalling these resources really quickly and efficiently because it could be a mating shortcut. She says, quote, even love at first sight is a basic mammalian response that developed in other animals 
and our ancestors inherited this in order to speed up the mating process. So if you think about it, our ancestors did not have Match.com at their disposal, and they only had, you know, maybe 30 or 40 years of a lifespan in the first place. So there wasn't a lot of, like, this is going to be my my first marriage uh, sort of talk. Yeah, so as uh, as as Fisher and uh, and her co-researchers pointed out in that uh, study, um, we're talking about early stage intense romantic love, and we're associating that with subcortal reward regions. All this rich with dopamine, as we discussed, and we see that romantic love engages brain systems associated with the motivation to acquire a reward. Yeah, she says about romantic love, it enables you to focus your mating energy on just one at a time, conserve your mating energy, and start the mating process with this single individual. And she said, I think of all the poetry that I've read about romantic love, what sums it up best is something that is said by Plato over 2,000 years ago. He said, the god of love lives in a state of need. It is a need. It is an urge. It is a homeostatic imbalance like hunger and thirst it's almost impossible to stamp out yeah i mean we call it love sickness for a reason you feel love sick it's i mean you begin to almost really bodily suffer out of this longing yeah and if anyone who's ever been a teenager (laughs) and and had any sort of love interest knows what that feels like right you can kind of feel that in the pit of your stomach right now um now there are some who may you know say look this is all very well, and perhaps we are um, neurally put together to quickly identify feelings of love. However, maybe this framing of it has more to do with the fallacy of memory. Yes, as we've discussed uh, in, a, in a few different podcast episodes, our memories are not these solid fixed items. They're not little stone sculptures stored away in a drawer. If anything, they are clay sculptures stored away in a drawer. And every time we get a memory out of that drawer, it's susceptible to change. Uh, we, we, put our, we, we project our present onto these little fragments of our past and then reform our past and reform our present in doing so. Yeah, and when you do that, you're strengthening those neural connections, right? Mm-hmm. So that's why um, sometimes people feel very like, yes, I know this happened exactly the way I think it happened because they've taken that memory out Mm -hmm. over and over again and revisited it. And so they can quickly get to it. And there's a certainty that they feel because of these neural connections when, in fact, there is a lot of fallacy in memory. And we've talked about this before. Uh, Donna Jo Bridge, a postdoctoral fellow in medical social sciences and a co-author of the study on how the brain reframes the past to fit the present, says, quote, When you think back to when you met your current partner, you may recall this feeling of love and euphoria, but you may be projecting your current feelings back to the original encounter with this person. Yeah, I mean, our lives are experienced in a, in a sort of storytelling way. We, we create a story. We are the center of our story. And, uh, and, and we are constantly tweaking the narrative, even though we don't realize it. Yeah, and that's what I think is interesting about that moment, that across the room you lock eyes and there's this idea that all these disparate elements of your autobiographical past may coalesce in this person. In other words, this sort of spreadsheet of what you find interesting in another person, Mm -hmm. this person might check off some of those boxes and it might feel like, ah, this is the one. And if that is successful, if you see that relationship through, then through the the power of narrative 
and the way that we reframe our experiences, then all of a sudden that becomes, yes, it was love at first sight, even though maybe it was just intrigue. Yeah, I mean, for the most part, you're, you're probably going to be uh, more likely to, to skew positive on your reframing of your personal story. I mean, for the most part, we want to live a happy narrative life. So you're gonna you're gonna tweak that. You're, I mean, we all experience this every every day. I, I feel like I do. It's like I'll think back on something in the past, past experience, past something I did, maybe something I I missed but don't get to do anymore. And then I have to to question. It's like, well, did I really? Was it really all positive, or were there some negatives in there that I'm kind of omitting in my uh, in my current narrative? You know, there was um, recently a study that came out, and my apologies because I don't have the the name of the study in front of me. But basically, it was a study of ten different languages from 24 different types of media, like literature and Twitter and so on and so forth. And they had hundreds of billions of words. And they went through this painstaking process of trying to figure out the sort of qualitative narrative here. Is there a sort of more positive words or less positive words that we use? And there does seem to be this positive skew to language, no matter what language they were looking at, people were using more positive terms. And so the idea there is that you're you're trying to survive, and storytelling and narrative is like a very basic way in which we do survive. Mm-hmm. And so overwhelmingly, the the message becomes, it's going to be okay. You know, yeah. <laughs> like, you're going to survive, you're going to get through this. And so it's no wonder that when we revisit our past histories, we do the same thing unconsciously. We're we're shaping them in a more positive light. Yeah, and, yeah, and indeed, I don't think there's any anything wrong with that. I mean, I guess sometimes I, I I maybe if I'm going to engage with the idea of something like love at first sight, not on a scientific level, but on like a just sort of a loftier uh, level, yeah, you know, I can think of it maybe in terms of the present reaching back through the past, mm-hmm. you know, because ultimately our experience of time is more or less an illusion. If you look at everything as a constant, you can say, well, there's not really a timeline of my relationship with the person I love. It's a constant. And so there's ultimately nothing wrong with applying the uh, emotions and the uh, and the importance that builds up over time, applying mm-hmm. that back to the beginning. Because ultimately, it's you know we're, we're not talking about a timeline. We're talking about a, uh, a, a a constant singular thing. And hey, this is this is personal history, right? Yeah. So we already know that we're skewing stuff in terms of what's realistic and what's sort of uh, made up fairyland fun stuff that we like to throw in our personal narratives. Now, when we get back to though that that idea of the gaze and mm-hmm. how this all first coalesced and happened, all these things unconsciously bubbling beneath. Um, there is a way that we can kind of do some eye tracking to figure out whether or not that first moment has more to do with love or lust. Yes. Uh, and, and again, this is another one of those studies that might seem like a, an outrageous overstatement of the obvious backed up by, by science. But, uh, but yeah, there's, there's the lustful gaze. And there is a more or less loving gaze. And we probably have some pretty firm ideas in our mind about what those gazes look like. Uh, like the lustful gaze is a cartoon coyote with its <laughs> eyes bulging out and its tongue lolling. And maybe it's it's going like, the noise, uh, you know? uh, that's the one. Yeah. So there's that. And then there's the more loving, lost in your 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 potential lover's eyes kind of look. I'm lost in love and I don't know why. I don't know that one. 
I don't know either. <laughs> it's in my head, but I do not know the artist. All right. So, of course, there's a report called Love is in the Gaze, published in Psychological Science, male and female students from the University of Geneva. They viewed a series of black and white photographs of people they had never met. And in the first experiment, participants looked at photos of young heterosexual couples interacting with each other. Now, in the second experiment, participants looked at photos of the opposite sex. Then they were asked to quickly identify the photos as either eliciting a feeling of romantic love or sexual desire. Now, the whole time, of course, there was eye tracking software. Mm hmm. Uh, looking at what was happening. And for bo- both men and women, uh, the software revealed that when participants reported feelings of romantic love, they tended to dwell upon the face, which makes sense, right? The yeah. eyes. and uh, But when they felt lusty, well, their, their, their gaze went south. And that makes sense, right? But I also can't help but pick at this especially with all the, the information we've just gone through, mm-hmm. and say, is there really that much difference between the two? If you really start looking under the hood of, uh, of all that's going on when, uh, when these two, when individual A and individual B uh, lock eyes for the first time or, you know, or one looks at the other one's butt, however it ends up going down. I mean, ultimately, is there, is there that much difference between the two? Like, there's just an exchange of stimuli. There's, a, there's a, an initial... Uh, gazing and uh, and scanning of the other organism to see if there's compatibility. Yeah, I agree. I think there's a whole like tail wagging the dog element yeah. to this. Yeah, I mean because yeah. you could just boil it down to this person is feeling lovey and giving the love gaze because they're genetically inclined to mate and produce offspring and then die. And uh, and meanwhile, the lusty individual is uh, is you know fantasizing about getting this person back to their apartment because their genetic uh, programming says that they need to mate with somebody, produce offspring, and then die. Right. And then, you know, eventually that works out or it doesn't. You know, mm-hmm. It turns into love or do- I mean, you know, it, it does. It, it sort of doesn't matter. Right. Yeah. But it to me, this is interesting because it once again unpacks this idea that our unconscious and our experiences, our autobiography at every moment is influencing the decisions that we make and our perceptions so it's lovely to say that, you know, ah, yes, I saw him and it was love at first sight. But there's so much more going on underneath that. Oh, indeed. Also, wanted to mention, uh, in terms of really obvious studies and information that I think all of us probably know on some level, there was recently one about the best way to caress someone's cheek, like their, their, <laughs> their face. Yeah. Uh, apparently, it's moderate pressure moving at uh, one inch per second. Okay. Up or down? I, I don't recall. Yeah. With knuckles or fingers? Oh, no, I think fingers. Okay. I think knuckles is, I don't know. Well, I don't know. That's Maybe a whole if other you, experience. If you go like that, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's kind of nice, too. I was just stroking my face <laughs> with my knuckles in case you guys are wondering what in the heck's going on. All right, so there you have it. Now, if you want to check out more about this topic, uh, be sure to check out StuffToBlowYourMind.com. I'll make sure that the landing page for this episode includes uh, links to related content, such as some of that other Valentine's Day lovey-dovey stuff about lingerie wearing rats and uh, and the microbiology of a kiss. Um, all of that will be on there, as, as well as some links out to some of these outside sources we've talked about, such as that uh, that TED Talk. And you can also check out our videos, our blog post, and uh, you know links out to our various social media accounts so you can follow us Uh, wherever you tend to hang out. 
And we would love to hear from you guys. Does this information change your ideas of your experiences of love and perhaps even love at first sight? Let us know. You can email us at belowthemind at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. 